Holy Father, you are the God of this universe. Christ Jesus is the King of this earth. And now with the fury of that destructive hurricane behind us and the uncertainty of a national election before us, we gather to worship you in the word together. You're the God who answers out of the whirlwind. You are the Lord who sets up kings and deposes them. Then surely you can interpose and intervene in the life of this nation today in such a way that we shall see your hand and glorify your name. In the name of Jesus Christ, we plunge into this teaching. Amen. In a few hours, Americans across this great land will go to the polls, step into booths, and cast their votes for the next president of the United States. It is possible that by the end of the evening, we will know who the 45th president of the United States will be. It is, of course, also possible that by the end of the night, we will not know, given the margin, the razor-thin margin of this national election. Cyberspace is now filled with hypothetical outcomes that include Contested state after state after state calling for recounts and an already interminable campaign election will continue on and on and on. There is even, and I do not know how this gets pulled out, but there is even the suggestion of the possibility of Mitt Romney being elected president and Joe Biden vice president. And I'm telling you what, <laughs> may the Lord deliver us. And all of this on the heels of this superstorm named Sandy, who has left too many Americans dead, and a price tag now to become the most costly natural, natural disaster in this nation's history, $50 billion. Ken and I were glued to the BBC in Scotland we gathered last weekend with a Scottish mission in a little fishing town called Arbroath. The news coverage was around the clock. And because we flew from Newark, New Jersey, to direct flight to Edinburgh, we knew that the hurricane riding was on the wall. We would not be going home the way we came. But I tell you what, what more beautiful place on earth to be stranded for an extra day. I want to take this opportunity because we have a few of them watching live streaming right now. I want to express our gratitude to our new friends, Bernie and Karen Holford and Marcel and Claudette Giolda, who bunked us up for those extra nights in their homes. God bless you. But trust me, I can tell you this having come back from Europe, trust me, the whole world was watching this hurricane and is tracking this election. As I wrote in my blog today, I fear for our nation no matter what outcome we might find. If Barack Obama is re-elected re as president, 
You don't have to be a political scientist to imagine the angry gridlock that will possess our government if we were gridded, locked before. We are going to be hugely so in the future. And if Mitt Romney is elected president, you don't have to be a political scientist to imagine the coalitions that have supported President Obama protesting the change and potentially shutting down swaths of the economy or the cities of this nation. Either way, we face a massive, massive challenge as a nation. The blogosphere is rife with the foreboding hypotheticals. And all of this just as we come to the third angel of the three angels' messages. Could it be that there are cryptic clues in this third angel embedded in this apocalyptic prophecy regarding America's future? Could it be that we third millennials, American or otherwise, might draw from this prophetic word a divine warning that one author calls the most threatening, the most fearful threatening ever addressed to mortals with that lengthy preamble. Open your Bible with me, please, to Revelation 14. I have a teaching on my heart today, and I want to share it with you. If you're watching live streaming, we're delighted you're here. You're here on this campus. You're here in this community. I'm glad you're here as well. Revelation chapter 14, I'll be in the New King James Version. You didn't bring a Bible. You need to track angel number three. Pull out the Pew Bible. It will be page 830, our Pew Bible. Revelation chapter 14, angel one, charismatic confusion. Angel two, Babylonian confusion. Angel three today, American confusion. Three angels, one warning. Let's begin with number three, verse nine. Then a third angel followed them, angels one and two, saying with a loud voice, megalophone in the Greek, with a megaphone, with a shout. If anyone worships the beast, and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. Verse 10, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Wow. What on earth is this third angel warning us about? The only way we will hear his word is if we understand that chapter 13 and chapter 14 are linked inexorably together. Let's go back to chapter 13. Amazing. Watch this. Chapter 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast. There are two beasts in this chapter. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in the earth to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Verse 13. He performs this beast under our uh, brooding consideration. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And verse 17, that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Who is this beast? 
something ominous, something terrible, something mysterious, something tragic being predicted in this, this haunted piece of the apocalypse. Who is this power? And could it be that there is only one power on earth today that fulfills the ID markers of this apocalyptic prophecy? Let's examine the prophecy for ourselves just briefly. Verse 11, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two, two horns like a lamb and he spoke like a dragon. It's interesting that John chooses the word for coming up. The word he chooses is anabaino. It means to spring up. It isn't just coming up, it's springing up. In fact, Jesus in his uh, parable of the sower in Matthew chapter uh, 13, verse 7, in Matthew's rendition in the Greek, the word for the, for the uh, weeds is they sprang up. You just shoot up like a weed. Whatever this power is, it will shoot up into global dominance. Over and over, we're told, the, command, the commanding of the entire earth will be undertaken by this whoever the power is. But please note, ladies and gentlemen, where the power comes from. Verse 11 again, then I saw another beast coming up out of the what? What does it say? Out of the earth. There are two beasts in Revelation 13. Beast number one comes up and is followed by beast number two. Where does beast number one come up from? Just turn the page back to verse one in chapter 13. The elderly John writing, and then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Up out of the sea. Now, letting the apocalypse interpret itself, let's put a text on the screen for our uh, cogitation. Revelation chapter 17, verse 15. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw, this sea, the waters which you saw were the harlot. And by the way, the harlot is the same is the same power as represented by this sea beast. The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. In other words, the waters in the apocalypse are symbolic in prophecy of the great masses of people and nations and languages. And, and, and get this, ladies and gentlemen, the book of Revelation is not a history about the human race. It is specifically focused on tracking the church, the Christian church. No word about China here. No word about Africa. Tracking the, the, the history of the Christian church through the dark and middle ages to the present. During the dark and middle ages, there was only one geo-religio-political power that exerted global dominance in that season of the history of the church. Only one. And that power came up out of the seas, out of the waters, where the masses, the thoroughfares of humanity in the history of the Christian church lived. That power arose out of Europe. This second beast is not the sea beast. It's the earth beast. Far away from the crossroads of Europe, this power will spring up like a weed and suddenly exert global dominance. What is up with that? Wow. There's one, one more ID marker that we need to note. Back to, uh, to verse 11 here in chapter 13. Then, notice this, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. Then means after the first beast. Something has just happened to the sea beast. Do you know what's just happened to the sea beast? It has been mortally wounded. In fact, there is concern on earth that that 
first beast, the sea beast, will not survive this wounding. There's only one power that could come out of the crossroads of Europe during the dark and middle ages, only one geo-religio-political power, and scholars and historians are absolutely clear it was wounded. He was wounded when a man who fashioned himself an emperor, a man named Napoleon, sent his French general Berthier down to Rome, and Pope Pius VI is taken captive, effectively shutting down the papacy. History is clear. February 1798. And then I see another beast springing up like a weed. And then what beast would become a global dominance at that same time. What beast would it be? I want you to jot these three markers down because you're going to brood over this long past today, I know. Jot the three markers down. Take out a study guide. There is a study guide in your worship bulletin. This one you must have. You're here in the orchestra. By the way, I've never been surrounded by more violins in my life. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. You just did beautifully. I'm so proud of you. This is the largest we've ever had on this stage of the Symphony Orchestra of Andrews University. And you were spot on today. Two student conductors, God bless you. Claudio Gonzalez, God bless you. Thank you, musicians. All right, you got study guides? Did they give you study guides? Let's go. I want you to write down these three markers. Okay, ushers, here you go. Here they go. Up in the balcony as well. Those of you who are watching on television or live streaming right now, we're delighted to have you. Let me give you our website. Go to the website, and you can get this same study guide. You're going to want this study guide. You see it on your screen right now, www.pmchurch.tv. You're looking for a little mini-series, by the way, that ends next week, a little four-parter, ends next week. Title of this mini-series, Three Angels, One Warning. Three Angels, One Warning. Charismatic Confusion, been there and done that. Babylonian Confusion, we finished that. Today, American Confusion, and don't miss next week, Global Confusion, as we wrap up these three angels. All right, so you go to that website, you're looking for it. American Confusion, the title of today's teaching. Click on the study guide. You'll have the same study guide. You're live streaming right now. You can do that while you are live streaming and get the uh, study guide. Okay, let's jot it down. Three ID markers embedded in the apocalypse that identify who this second beast power really is. Take a look at it. Let's, let's, let's jot them down. ID marker number one. And, and let's, let's, let's simply ask questions. Let's simply ask questions. All ID markers are in the form of a question. Number one, what power on earth sprang into existence and began its comparatively rapid growth into global dominance around the 1790s? Write that in, please. Around the 1790s, what power sprang into existence? All right, ID marker number one. Here comes ID marker number two. What power on earth sprang into existence far away? Key word, far away from the waters, from the masses and multitudes of the great nations of the Middle Ages, far away from Europe, if you please. What power is that? And finally, ID marker number three in the form of a question. What power on earth sprang into existence with those two credentials and today holds global, international, worldwide sway? What power would that be? Keep your pen moving. I'll give you the answer. As I humbly believe it to be from my study of this book, jot it down, given the historical background as well as the time frame for its emergence, there is only one international power that fits the prophetic description of Revelation 13. Keep reading. Late 1700s, away from Europe and the masses, growing rapidly into eventual global dominance, and that power is the United States. Write it down. The United States of America. 
I think of the words written by that Russian immigrant when he landed on these shores in 1893, words I often join other Americans in singing out with all my heart, the words of Irving Berlin, God bless America, land that I love, stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above, from the mountain to the prairies to the oceans, white with foam, God bless America, my home sweet home. What American soul has not felt the electric thrill of singing those words? I realize that we are a campus of 90 nations. But the truth is, God has blessed America. From its humble beginning, people by immigrants, mine came from Sweden three generations ago, peopled by immigrants who sought to establish a country without a king and a church without a pope. From such humble but noble beginnings, to such astounding global prominence today. God bless America, and he has. Let me share these words with you, written a century ago. I'll put them on the screen for you. The Lord has done more for the United States than for any other country upon which the sun shines. Write that down. Now, there's more to the quote. You don't have the whole quote, but I want you to track it. Get, get your eyes on the screen because there's more to come. Here in the U.S., God provided an asylum for his people where they could worship him according to the dictates of conscience. Here, Christianity has progressed in its purity. The life-giving doctrine of the one mediator between God and man has been freely taught here. God designed that this country should ever remain free for all people to worship him in accordance with the dictates of conscience. You from the 90 nations are here because you could come here. You came here because this was a land of opportunity for your pursuit of education. God designed that its civil institutions in their expansive productions should represent the freedom of gospel privileges, end quote. You say, Dwight, you are so parochial. You are, you, you are just like an American. Well, I am one. <laughs> but let me quote someone who's not an American. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to be at the Economic Club of Southwestern Michigan and the guest speaker that day, the most powerful woman at that time, the most powerful political leader of the world, and her name was Margaret Thatcher. You may have heard of her. I grabbed my pen and scribbled down on the napkin when she spoke these words. She said, the United States is the greatest power in the world today. She went on, you have indeed a very, very special destiny. If only she knew. Let me read to you that destiny. Go back to chapter 13, verse 12. And this power that represents this land that I love, and this power. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Drop down to verse 16. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now we understand why the cryptic clue embedded in angel number three takes us intentionally to Revelation chapter 13. 
Let's go back to the third angel. Read the words again, verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with this megaphone cry, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Can you believe that, ladies and gentlemen? Here is a nation with such a peaceful and freedom-loving roots eventually transformed into a dictatorial global superpower that will command through force the entire world to pay obeisance to Rome. What a tragic turn of history. American confusion indeed. And I want to share with you now two catalysts. Count them. One, two catalysts for the confusion. Here is why there's confusion today as we face this election. Confusing catalyst number one. Jot it down. There are only two of these. Number one is the mistaken belief that the United States is God's chosen nation. That is a mistake. I know that the notion declares we are a Christian nation, but the historical reality, reality is that we are not. We never have been, and the founding fathers never intended us to be. The emergence of the religious right in the last three decades has sparked a revisionist rewriting of history that declares America to be God's new Israel, God's shining city on a hill. Quoting the words of John Winthrop, the pilgrim father, he spoke these words as the pilgrims sailed away to the new world. He just called it a city on a hill. Ronald Reagan's the one who came along and in his farewell address called it a shining city on a hill. Paul Dean a pastor and blogger, recently challenged our misguided blending of patriotism with faith in a blog. You can find it, and I've got the address for you right there, crosswalk.com. You can track it. You will be benefited by reading this blog. But let me put a few words of the blog on the screen for you right now. Most American Christians believe that America has a special place in God's heart. God and country are inseparable in the minds of many to the point that to be a good Christian is to be a good American and vice versa. However, we must learn to think biblically about God and country and the connection between the two. We must debunk the popular notions that America is a Christian nation. The church, now he's still writing, the church, and I want you to write that word in because he is absolutely spot on. The church is the only Christian nation according to the Scriptures. When Jesus says, you are the light of the world, he's speaking about America. He's not speaking about the UK, Russia, Africa, Asia. He's speaking about his followers, the Christian church. You're the light of the world. You're the shining city on a hill. Not this nation. We have, how does Dean put it here? We must debunk the popular notions that America is a Christian nation. Keep reading. That, or that America is the new Israel, or that America will one day establish a Christian government and be the light of the world, or that to be a good Christian is to, is to be a good American. Listen, those of you from 90 other countries, you can be a good Christian anywhere in the world and love your country of origin. The issue is not what country we love, but whether we truly love Christ. That's the issue. And as a university community, we have to represent to the world. Don't get snookered into this blending of patriotism with faith. It'll take you down a path that ends up in the dark ages, trust me. 
Paul Dean makes the biblical point well. Yes, this nation has been blessed more than any other nation upon which the sun shines, but that hardly makes America God's chosen people or nation. It was raised up. Now, here's the key. It was raised up to be a freedom-protecting home base for God's final global everlasting gospel to be taken to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, to borrow the language of the first angel. This was needed to be a base. Two confusing, two confusions based on these two catalysts. Two confusions. Here's confusing catalyst number one. Put it on the screen, what we just noted, the mistaken belief that the United States is God's chosen nation. And here comes number two, the, <clears throat> the mistaken belief that any political party is God's chosen agent. Lauren Sabold, in the, in, in the latest issue of Science of the Times magazine, wrote a piece entitled, Is God a Republican? Let me put a few of his words on the screen. It has become virtually impossible to get elected as a Republican without leaning in some way toward conservative Christian values and promising governmental advocacy for the ideas that conservative Christians hold dear. I should clarify that many of these Christian values are also mine. And if I might add my humble little voice, me too. Those are my values. However, if Abraham Lincoln were running for president today, it is unlikely he could even be nominated by his own Republican Party. He was a member of no church, never publicly confessed a creed, and never publicly used religious beliefs to justify his policies." End quote. And by the way, what is true of the Republicans is true of the Democrats, it is true of the Libertarians, it is true of the Green Party. God is not a member of any American political party, period. No political party has a corner on mirroring God's character or his agenda more completely than another. In Nazi Germany, no, 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 no let me just take you back in history. In Nazi Germany... The Christian church failed miserably because she aligned herself with the political ideological agenda of the ruling government. Tragic, tragic end to its influence in that land. Lauren Siebold observes about Jesus. Let me put these words on the screen. I, I thought this was prescient. Jesus never placed much value on occupying an earthly throne. His kingdom, he insisted, wasn't anywhere on this earth. That would be his words to Pilate in John 18, 36. Who ruled the nations down here was far less important to him than that everyone understood the character and purposes of the king of the universe. I like that. Well, what are you saying, Dwight? Then, 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 come on, we're all getting ready to vote in a few hours. Are you saying that we Christians ought not to vote? No, I'm not saying that. I mean, please. Jesus' own teaching, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, provides for us to express, express our persuasion and our, our convictions. But beware the notion that party alliances place us in harmony with divine values. Be careful. Be very careful. Too recent, too recent and rather thinly veiled efforts to point Christians in this nation toward a particular political agenda are examples of the overt efforts now being made to align Christians with a particular party. The first one, I'll show these both to you. The first one. The Billy Graham Association, and I'm quite convinced, spurred on by son Franklin Graham, released this full-page ad to newspapers across the land in preparation for the voting in just a few days. You see, the, that giant of a man of faith, 
in the evangelical community of America, the great Billy Graham. What you can't read there is the small print. So you look at Billy Graham's face. He's just a hero of mine. You look at his face, that old lion of winter now, and listen to these words that were published beside his picture. The legacy we leave behind for our children, grandchildren, and this great nation is crucial. As I approach my 94th birthday, I realize this election could be my last. I believe it is vitally important that we cast our ballots for candidates who base their decisions on biblical principles and support the nation of Israel. I urge you to vote for those who protect the sanctity of life and support the biblical definition of marriage between a man and a woman. Vote for biblical values this November 6th and pray with me that America will remain one nation under God. And you see a signature there, Billy Graham. A rather thinly veiled, instructive to the Christians of this land, here's how you vote. But not to be left out, the Roman Catholic Church a few months ago produced skillfully produced a video to be played to its members before the election. I'm going to play this very short video clip. There's no narration, only music. You read with your eyes and see for yourself. Let's, let's roll the clip.
thinly veiled. Thinly veiled. Not so thinly veiled. We got back at midnight Thursday. The Friday morning paper, this story. Bishop Daniel Jenke, Bishop of Peoria. Daniel Jenke, by the way, is a member of the University of Notre Dame's Board of Fellows. He's the high, that is the highest tier of the university's Board of Trustees. He sent a pastoral letter to his priest to be read tomorrow before the election. Bishop Daniel Jenke ordered priests to read a letter to parishioners Sunday before the presidential election stating that politicians who support abortion rights also reject Jesus. Now listen to the letter. By virtue of your vow of obedience to me as your bishop, I require that this letter be personally read by each celebrating priest at each weekend mass. I require that a loyalty to me Provocative, hardly veiled at all. Lawrence Sabold goes on, put the words on the screen. Suppose, for example, that a politician decided that everyone should worship on Sunday, an idea that has been proposed from time to time through history. That would be fine for most Christians, but it would put Jews and Seventh-day Adventists who observe the seventh day of the week in a situation where they'd have to choose between obeying a human law or their understanding of obeying God's law. The politicians who give one religious group what they want may be taking freedom from another, end quote. That's the point. When a politician caters for that vote, that Christian vote... At what price will bands of the community of faith give their allegiance to that politician, no matter who the politician is? Can it happen here? Will it happen here according to Revelation 13 and 14? A century ago, this provocative prediction was made. Put it on the screen for you. When Protestantism shall stretch her hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power, when she, when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism, which is secular paganism, when under the influence of this threefold union, our country shall repudiate. That is a strong word. Write it down. Our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government, end quote. The stunning linkage, ladies and gentlemen, between Revelation 13 and Revelation 14 heightens the divine warning of the third angel that institutional coercion of religious practice by any power on earth is utterly antithetical to the character and the kingdom of God and will be the recipient of swift divine justice in the end because God will get the last word. Verse 9, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. So how then shall we live in this precipitous time, in this nation and in this world's history? We must pray the prayer of John Knox. On Tuesday, Karen and I stepped into the John Knox house on that royal mile that lifts 
its way up to the mighty castle atop that hill in Edinburgh, Scotland. I took this picture, in fact, a stained glass window in that house. John Knox, considered to be the most famous of all Scots, grew up a commoner beside the wilds of the Scottish Highlands in the early 1500s, entered the priesthood after studies at the University of St. Andrews. No relation, of course. Influenced by the martyrdom of the Scottish clergyman George Wishart, captured by the French army besieging St. Andrews, chained in the service in a slave galley ship. John Knox, released by the French, exiled to England, fleeing to Geneva where he studied at the feet of the Protestant reformer John Calvin. John Knox, returning to his homeland to become the great reformer of the Church of Scotland, fearlessly, personally challenging and admonishing Mary, Queen of Sto Scots, for her allegiance to Rome. John Knox, who would die and she would be beheaded. John Knox, who ended his days a mighty preacher of the Reformation in Scotland. He prayed a prayer. This was his prayer. God, give me Scotland or I die. On the eve of this uncertain chapter in America's history, should we not embrace that same prayer and pray for this land that we love? Oh, God, give me America or I die. For though the prophecy of the ending to this land is bitter, I remind you the people of this land can still be reached by the everlasting gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, give me America. Give me this nation that I love or I die. I wish you would pray that prayer with me. It will surely require the life and perhaps the death one day of those who would join with heaven in seeking the redemption of this people in this nation at this hour. God, give me, give me America or I die. Take out your Connect card today, please. It's in your worship bulletin. You know... If you're a longtime worshiper here, fill out the demographic information on the front that you're comfortable with. Guess we're delighted to have you. And I'd like to invite you to, to respond with this little card. It's not enough to hear a teaching like this. Okay, great teaching. What are we going to have for dinner now? It's not enough to hear a teaching like this and not make some sort of personal response to it. I want to give you that opportunity right now to make a response. Turn the card over. We call this the next step side of the card. By the way, put your email address on there. If you're going to ask for material, then we, we need to be able to read it. Make sure it's legible. Only two next steps today. I put a check mark in both of them. Next step number one, I will pray the prayer of John Knox, give me America or I die. I'm appealing to the young of this generation. I'm appealing to the worshipers in this congregation and on this campus. I'm appealing to those of you who are watching on television. Join me with this prayer. Why not? What can we lose? There are other powers praying the same prayer, asking for this nation. Why not ask the nation? Ask for the nation on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, not on behalf of a political agenda, not on behalf of a political party, but on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give me America or I die. Put a check mark there. The ushers will be by in just one moment to receive these Connect cards. The second box today, I will seek to reach my nation for Christ through my witness to one citizen at a time. There is stuff 
you know from your study of the Bible that one day will be shared. I want to share Jesus with a secular pagan nation as, almost as pagan as Scotland, England, and Ireland. It's a dark night for the world. There will be a movement at the end of time to shine the light of the Lord Jesus Christ one last time. I want to be a part of that movement. I will seek to reach my nation for Christ through my witness to one citizen at a time. Put a check mark there. The ushers will come by. This is, this is an unusual time for our nation. Hurricane Sandy right behind us, national election right in front of us. What will God do for this most blessed of all nations under the sun? I want to end with an appeal for Hurricane Sandy. Our conference yesterday sent word around, please make an appeal in every church for Americans on the eastern seaboard. Let me just show you the pictures in case you forgot the pictures already. Look at that. Look at that. A thousand mile sweep. We heard in Scotland about the 25 foot waves in, on Lake Michigan. That's Hurricane Sandy. Look at the next picture. Next picture. Look at that devastation. This is, this is our land. Jamaica to the south already devastated when Sandy worked her way up. Look at the next picture. Devastation gone. New York City. We can't sit here in all our comfort and safety without responding. And so here's the deal. Listen carefully. The Michigan Conference would like to take a special offering today for New Jersey, New York, Virginia, those, those states. The conference president of New Jersey just yesterday called, said, send help, please. Michigan has always been on the cutting edge of community response, and so here's what we do. You say, Dwight, I'm not even prepared to give a penny today. It's okay. Grab a tithe envelope. It'll be right in front of you somewhere in that pew. Pull the tithe envelope out. Take that tithe envelope hope, home. Scribble Hurricane Sandy on it. Bring it back. Do not give your gift to ADRA. I love ADRA, but ADRA is global, not national. We have to go national for this one. Just market Hurricane Sandy. We'll get the monies to Hurricane Sandy recovery victims, all right? So just market Hurricane Sandy on your tithe envelope. $50 billion of recover, recovery efforts. The most destructive hurricane in our history. Something's, somebody's in need. Let's, let's respond. If you, have, if you can respond today, do so in a tithe envelope. The ushers, I'm going to invite the ushers to stand right now. We're going to have a prayer of dedication for our next step and our morning tithes and offerings. Boys and girls, in just a moment, you can slip through the aisles and you pick up the offering for Christian Adventist education. That will be very helpful for us as well. Let us pray, O oh God, God in three persons, blessed Trinity, the God who occupies the throne of the universe, who looks down upon this earth and these children as his own, O oh God, be between the hurricane past and the election to come, we pray, do whatever it takes. Save the people of this nation. Oh, God, give me America or I die. Out of a love born for this, our homeland, and a passion born for the Lord Jesus Christ, who has our highest allegiance, send us forth, dear Father, in the name of Christ.
to cast his light into the gathering darkness of earth and reach your children while there's time. Take our humble gifts, our commitments, our gifts, our tithes, and use them for your kingdom's glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.